2: You have accessed entry 508.GN2716, certificate number 26505.
3: Furries! I kind of lone wolfed it as a kid. Skateboarding was always there for me, art was there. I think it kind of broadened into fan fiction, and they all had animal characters in them. Just, I had all kinds of ways to escape. I feel like a lot of people find the fandom because they feel different. There's got to be somewhere out there on the internet just like me and that they find exactly that. I like the way you say it.
2: I have never been so happy to read the name of an uh, omnibus entry before. I mean, Turbo Encabulator is fun to say, but Furries is really fun to say.
1: Do you think of I mean you must think of yourself as part as, <laughs> as a furry. You must you must, surely, because you're <laughs> currently wearing an anthropomorphic. You can see my giant pr- prairie dog suit that I always wear to these recordings. Funny, we'll get to the prairie dog in a second. But uh, you you must think of yourself as nerd adjacent or part of a sort of rise of nerd culture. Oh, sure. It was very
2: much baked into me to just
1: be fascinated by stuff that
2: none of my friends. Were fascinated by, you know, a few of them were into X Men comics, right? Which I thought was kind of nerdy. But like, I knew I was really into weird stuff, like, like, like I would watch Family Feud, but I would write down all the questions and answers in a notebook. Whoa! What's going on there? Like, <laughs> you can't even explain that to someone. What kind of what kind of kink is that? No, I don't like, understand uh, it at all. And I didn't either. It, it's it's a fetishization of data, I, I guess. Yeah. And so, and you know, when I actually became part of geek culture by being on my favorite geeky game show, that was very much like an apotheosis, I was like, I
1: am now one with my culture. Sure, they, they reference you in, in uh, board games and stuff.
2: You know, it doesn't mean that I like or even understand everything about geek culture, because now that's such a huge umbrella. I mean, to be a geek is just to be an expert in something. And well, you can be an expert in blacksmithery, or you can be an expert in a certain obscure anime, and that's not the same thing.
1: No, but it has become like a billions and billions of dollar media like circus empire. And an
2: identity, no longer a subculture, but really a very mainstream identity where you kind of have to say,
1: oh, I'm such a nerd, I like Game of Thrones. Although I feel like it's we're, we're in a cusp time when, 10 years from now, why would anybody identify themselves as a, as a nerd or a geek? We're all... I mean, it just means to enjoy anything or to be good at anything.
2: Is there anything like that where the identity went away because it grew to encompass 100% of the human rate? Maybe the first people to be vaccinated were like,
1: (laughs) I'm a (laughs) vaccine." That's no longer 100%. What would it be? I mean, I think think you could maybe make a case. Maybe,
2: well, I was going to say literacy, but that's only true in the West.
1: It will be a much longer process, but I imagine vegetarianism will over time grow to... Be uh, the the norm mm-hmm. as you know as we develop the ability to make halfway decent tasting synthetic food. meats, and eventually it will seem like vegetarianism is it's not necessary that you mention it anymore. That's happening in a lot of respects, right? We no longer assume that a certain kind of normalcy is normal, and and it doesn't mean we're out the other side of it where. Were there different terms for everything? Yeah, you kind of
2: expect everyone to have their one weird thing, their notebook of family feud answers.
1: But like I was a nerd in, in high school because I preferred talking to adults and I, and I read, I mean not in high school, I mean in grade school. I preferred talking to adults and I read Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I was ostracized from other kids. You were Alex P. Keaton. Yeah, but I didn't feel any affinity with kids that like Batman. I was... You know, I was a. That's a, the central tension of John Roderick. Yeah, is that you're a nerd, but you're not a a capital <laughs> N nerd. Have you seen what they're up to? I mean, <laughs> I thought of myself as a, as a, as truly an outsider from other kids, but not like somebody that believed in.
2: But but in this era, you found Bats. others like you who are nearly 100% compatible with all those weird things, and they're kind of in nerd adjacent spaces, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. Is that a long look in the mirror? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but have you ever been, because I I've been into your inner sanctum, and even into the inner inner sanctum, and there are a lot of little figurines and magic tricks and... See, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Lego spaceships. And like
2: there are people with big collections of it's spawn true. figurines and I just have weird detritus that was given to me. You're like,
1: not a, you're, I, I wouldn't describe you as like, I, I, there's no room in your house that's, that's 100% full of like Totoros.
2: Right. But, but, uh, but it's true that I do have a you know a bendable gun, Gumbian Pokey sitting on my desk. Yeah. But it's not because I have a collection of figurines. It's because at some point somebody gave me a Gumbian Pokey and I I think it actually is pretty cool to have you, a Bendible, Gumby, and you have
1: every Marvel comic book. Yes. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I spent all my game show money on. You're over here like, oh, don't look at me. I'm not somebody that's got like G.I. Joes.
2: I do not have every Marvel comic book, but you're right. I have like some big books of the comics I liked walls as a kid. and walls, Spider-Man. Just and and shelves X-Men. and shelves of
1: them. Have you ever been to a con? Any kind of, a con is a shorthand term for any kind of Conference of fans, like-minded people, uh, of certain sort of media or or entertainment. I guess uh,
2: art. I feel like the first con-like thing I went to was going to quiz bowl tournaments in college. Hmm. It was it was a competition, but it had all the vibes of a con.
1: Is it like a spelling bee?
2: Yeah, essentially, you it's a round robin competition where you're going in and out from room to room playing each other. And nowadays, but there aren't booths. No, there's no convention floor, but it is like-minded people with a weird hobby just doing it to excess right. for 48 hours including in the corridor of their hotels after the match. You know, since then I've been to like I've been to the local, I've been to the Comic-Con. I've taken my kids to the Comic-Con here. I've been to like crossword puzzle tournaments and uh, puzzle hunts and kind of weird convention adjacent things like that. But the only straight up con with a big floor, I've, oh, I've been to the Lego convention here. Oh yeah. Having kids means you got, kind of have a free ticket to go to some of this weird stuff.
1: And just be happy to be there. Yeah. And, What's your
2: <laughs> And try to lift up your kid above the large <laughs> men so they can actually see the Lego set or the uh, Batmobile or whatever it is. What What, right. what is your con, uh, Uh, Bonafide.
1: Well, I have a lot of con experience and you wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever thought uh, going into my adulthood that this would be a thing. But early on in my nerd history, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time through my introduction to the scene by being on the Jonathan Colton cruise in the. um, It's a floating con. It's a floating con. Right. And I, I was a founder, a founding performer on that Joko cruise and then did seven or the first seven cruises, I guess. But what that meant was I was then a member of that subculture, including friendship with Will Wheaton and Adam Savage and Paul and Storm, these um, iconic characters in different quadrants of, you know, Will Wheaton gets the Star Trek culture and Adam Savage is the maker. But it's like anything else where the higher up you get, those people hang out with each other. Right. And so there was an event at Comic-Con called the Wootstock uh, which was just a just a variety show of different people attending the con that were all celebrities of different kinds who get out and do little presentations and sing songs and filled up a big theater there and so I was invited to to perform at the Wootstocks as kind of a member of the of the, the little uh, tribunal.
2: You have rock cred right but you can speak their languages well you're a very rare commodity there you're the, you're the you're the unicorn of uh of a con looking for a indie rock slash geek culture threesome
1: yeah in a, in a way I have so much stage time in my career that I can walk out on a stage and put on a show and a lot of you know a lot of nerd people are very famous in their realm but they haven't you know, they don't know what a microphone does uh, until they walk out and try and put on a show. And
2: plus you're really good at close-up magic,
1: which I a lot of a people lot don't know. So,
2: magic. like, you can just mesmerize a
1: crowd <laughs> with that for hours. <laughs> also, I, I I know every single episode of DS9 and can <laughs> quote from it. Uh, but what that meant was I would arrive at, at this show and I would be given a pass to Comic-Con and often a three-day, like, all-access pass. It, 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 Comic-Cons have a lot of levels of access. That's a way to charge more. And I would be, as a performer, and because I was associated with these people that had a lot more access than you would expect, I would be given these credentials and allowed to roam freely. You've got the run of the con. I really did. And because because of a friendship with someone like Adam Savage, who is a star of any con that he goes to, if you just sort of are walking along with him, doors open in ways that you couldn't imagine. And so I got to participate in Comic-Con, with uh, but as a complete outsider at first, just to walk onto the conference floor the first time ever, knowing nothing about really what was happening. Uh, I, I had that kind of unique and extraordinary experience of just being blown away by- It is overwhelming, right? By the number of people, by the commitment that they all had to whatever it was they were doing, whatever they were into, people in- Costume people that were promoting their product, but you know, people that were just desperate to consume the uh, specialization of the
2: stuff that somebody can sell and apparently do a great business in is fantastic. Like I make only fake WPA style travel posters, but instead of national parks, it's places from Doctor Who. Like, yeah. (laughs) And wait, you can rent that booth and sell like a thousand of
1: those? Really? A lot of, and so a, a ton of little like pretty independent makers of things. And, and I would, walking around the con. In your Stormtrooper suit. I would, in my Stormtrooper suit, I would come around the corner and there'd be a little booth there and someone's selling some stuff and I would look and they would look and I'd go, I know you. And they'd say, hello. And it would be somebody I knew from the world, the real world. And this was part of their year that they would come make a T-shirts or make games or something. and this is sell somebody you
2: know out. from the Seattle scene just, would also be making uh Scooby Doo costume jewelry,
1: right? Or, or somebody that was a fan of, of my band that was also, and not, and sometimes not—they weren't really members of the subculture. This was just part of their business. You know, their thing had been adopted by by the Comic Con culture, such that this became a thing that they like. I knew people that worked at Fantagraphics, right? And and Fantagraphics has a huge sure. booth there.
2: Can you imagine how like different this is? Like as recently as twenty years ago. Like the number of people who can make a living making a weird thing like that. I mean, you couldn't, there must've been somebody selling Star Trek t-shirts through weird mimeographed ads somewhere. I don't know where in the back of something weird. You never, uh, what's the name of some sci-fi magazine? Like, Like uh,
1: Omni analog magazine (laughs) or something.
2: Yeah. Omni magazine. Exactly. (laughs) And now like thousands of people can tens of thousands of people probably can find their, their customer base.
1: Well, when I first went to Comic Con, it was it was after the the big Hollywood studios and the big media companies had started to realize that this was a place where they had a captive audience for their, you know, for the big release of the new Marvel movie or whatever. It, it was it was post, you know, the, when you talk to Comic Con people, there are these days in in ancient yore when it was just members of the
2: I remember community. when it was, yeah, it would be a little bit seedy because you'd be in some weird ramada. But look, there's George Takei from Star Trek. Right. You know? well, and
1: I I, I had the good fortune uh, to spend a couple of days with George R. R. Martin a few years ago. And he, and I I'd sit down at a dinner table with him and his significant other and, you know, the people in his family. I went to his house. And we started talking about the early days of the fantasy cons that, I mean, that's where it was like a, a cultural event where you would meet your wife type of thing. Wasn't he the number one
2: guest, like the first ever pass issued for some super influential con and the
1: trivia is that it was George R.R. R. Martin? Yeah, yeah. But, and he was. has he has these great memories, you know, he was just nostalgic about what it was like when you would go to a con and there just wasn't, and no one outside of that world knew about it, but it was the big deal.
2: I've I've talked to him too. And it's a, it's a very interesting experience to be somebody like that who became, who was a star of that world. And like in his fifties or sixties, Became a one of the most famous men on the planet. Yeah, like that's after
1: having just been like a just a pretty big cheese
2: in that world <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, and suddenly you know he's having parade ticker tape parades. It's like the
1: you that's know, that's gr- that's geek culture graduate. I was an amazing juggler my whole <laughs> life, and then juggling became the coolest thing. And then suddenly he becomes part of the Mercury Seven because he can juggle <laughs> or something. One of the things that is the most affecting and and astonishing about walking out into one of these conventions is the costuming, the degree the, um, to which people just dive into a cosplay. And a lot of it is, uh, they're cosplaying superheroes or people in the... Uh, Somebody from pop culture. Yeah, media pantheon <laughs> where you're like, it's you, it's Batman, and oh, there it is, it's Doctor Who. There'll be teams. Look, it's
2: Marty McFly and you're with uh, Doc Brown, how fun. Yeah,
1: people cosplay together. There are a lot of people cosplaying kind of the same characters. So you see, you see right. a lot of Totoro's. Uh, but then there are also, you know, cosplayers that do, that do variations on those themes. So you'll see like steampunk Batman. It's a pretty great Batman, but he's also got only steampunk Tools.
2: I like when it's a joke, like it'll be like Garth Vader or something, <laughs> and it's like Darth Vader, he's got a Wayne's World wig on, or, and and you have to like they walk by, and then a minute later you're like, oh, yeah, that
1: guy, it's it's really clever, and that's the type of thing. I mean, when I would get invited to parties when I was uh, in my twenties, you know, and somebody would say we're having a breakfast at Tiffany's party, and what they meant was come go to the thrift store. Go, yeah, come in a suit. Yeah. And then you'd show up at the party and 80% of the people are just in the suit that they had to buy for their mom's wedding. There's nothing breakfast at Tiffany's about it. They just knew they had to wear a jacket. I've heard you complain about oh, bad so, costume party stuff before. So angry. This must be your dream come true to go to the con and find people who have spent hundreds of hours on every costume. Well, car. it is because I would go to those costume parties, but I would put on an eye patch and I would speak in a German accent the whole time like I was I was truly I would inhabit the role.
2: Well, that's very much a con thing too. Like you're not yeah. dressed to somebody people recognize. I am Vladimir Gallo Glass, a third level paladin. And this right. is the, uh, there were guys talking like pirates to each other when nobody could hear. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was clear they were not a famous pirate. No. They were just a club of people that goes to the con to talk like pirates you to each other. You inhabit your
1: persona. Yeah. And I, I really love that kind of, I mean, if I adopt a persona, sometimes, honestly, <laughs> I swear to you, I'll just do it for a day. Like if I'm traveling or something, I'll just decide that I'm somebody and I just am that person all day. It's not something I'm proud of. I don't want to join a a gang, but you know, it's, it's a fun, it's a diversion if you don't have anything else to do. Is this one we're going to find out that what we believe to be John Roderick is just one of your personas? Uh, well, no, it may be that you find that there are some people you already
3: know, uh, famously who actually are me. <laughs> Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com/slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com/slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Anyway, the the, the thing that struck me the most um,
1: was uh, after I, you know, wandered the cons was. The kind of presence of people in fursuits, which is to say um, anthropomorphic animal costumes that look kind of like what you would think a sports mascot for a, for a college basketball team. But they're not, they're not as exaggerated. It's not like the Philly Fanatic or the Mariners Moose. They don't. Yeah, they don't have comic
2: caricature you know, heightened color always, for example. Right. They
1: they they were um they tended to maybe look a little bit more like the Disney Robin Hood. Like a kind of So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Like I just watched the Disney
2: Robin Hood oh. with, with my daughter and I hadn't seen it in many years, but I found I could like nearly recite it. Yes. So here's my question. Am I a furry? No. What? No here's, <laughs> here's my question. Is Robin Hood like ground zero for this kind of because it's a very specific the furry, I don't want to jump ahead, but it seems to me that the furry aesthetic is not just dressing like an animal, but it's dressing like an animal with a very specific heritage and aesthetic. The body is a human, but covered in hair. Right, fur. Fur, sorry. The hands, for example, are human hands, not animal hooves or paws usually.
1: They look like hands. They're meant to be hands, but they're covered with fur. Right, yeah.
2: uh, because here's what happens in the Robin Hood movie. It's not explained why, but the, re- the denizens of, of uh, medieval England have been replaced by a series of animals of different species, right. mind you.
1: Right, they although there's not cross-species romance.
2: I was about to say, they can't appear to interbreed. Conveniently, made Marion and Robin Hood are the same. They're foxes, but they're not foxes. They stand upright with right. human shoes and gloves and whatnot. They appear to have, you know, opposable thumbs and human-shaped feet, but their face is a full-on fox face with kind of a cute Disney vibe they will wear human clothes, but maybe only partially? Yes. Like, I think Little John doesn't wear pants, maybe? Right.
1: He's got a shirt. Um,
2: so it seems like, like is this Best. where this look came from? Did Disney invent the idea of putting animal heads on a hair, on a furry human body and saying, what if civilization but this?
1: Well, if you think about it, it goes back, you can find antecedents all the way back. Like, if you think about Walt Kelly's Pogo. Mm. Um, really, a lot of, so the very earliest Disney cartoons. Well,
2: Kelly animated for Disney. So he's bringing a, a, a cute, he animated on Dumbo. So he's bringing a cute Disney sensibility
1: to the comics. Well, and Dumbo is the first Disney animated feature that features talking animals. You know, the like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. They're, they're, Pe- yeah. they're pets, There are animals in it. They're birds that tweet merrily. Geppetto's got his pet cat and fish. And Pinocchio is not a, he's not a real boy. But we don't have that kind of anthropomorphic like characters until Dumbo. But in Dumbo, the elephants look like elephants and the, and the crows look like crows. It's not, they aren't elephants standing up and walking around with five fingers. That's um, true. And that's true in Bambi too. The animals do have language.
2: Dumbo has animals wearing clothes, which Bambi does not.
1: They're But they're wearing clothes that you see, that you feel like are put on them by humans rather than and their own This clothes. might happen. The mouse is a little
2: ambiguous. Why does the mouse have that ringmaster uniform? Where do you get that? Who made that? Yeah, it's weird. But,
1: but, but yeah. But Mickey Mouse is wearing gloves and pants that belong to him. He only has pants. Donald
2: only has a top. Only has
1: a top. But they're theirs. They're not, there are no humans that appear in the Mickey and Donald universe. No. And that's, so somewhere in there we're talking, because what's crucial about the furry verse is that it isn't, there aren't humans there. And this is true of Robin Hood. It's not that this is a animal world that's on some small scale, and that humans are walking humans around. around. Maybe humans are in France. We don't know. <laughs> it's it's not you know it's not yeah. Watership Down. It's um, it is the world, and it's, they're not animals either. Right. They are. That's not how they
2: have foxes human walk Characteristics, yeah. but they have a few animal. You know, Robin Hood is sly, and
1: therefore he's a fox. Sir Hiss is sneaky, therefore he's a snake. Well, and so this was a thing that evolved over time. But in the in the early seventies, there was a kind of because anime and manga in Japan also had been developing a cute aesthetic, acute right? A cute aesthetic and animals that were anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. It all started to kind of coalesce in the early seventies: science fiction and manga and uh, Disney we're all melding in the culture. When I said a cute aesthetic, do you think this is the first time
2: this could have happened because there was no cute aesthetic in say the renaissance or in ancient sumeria. I mean,
1: like big eyes and yeah, little the, noses.
2: The things we associate with that cute aesthetic. I mean, was there would there have been a is there an equivalent of that in any other culture or did we kind of invent this ch- the style everyone associates with childhood and innocence and Uh, you know, a kind of attractiveness that is
1: asexual, but... Appealing. Appealing, yeah. I think that before World War II, for the most part, globally, childhood was not regarded as an idyllic time. Mm. And there was no teen years. Uh, there There was no concept of teenager. So you were a child, which was a period where you had no authority over yourself and nothing was... You were just being Trained and then you were an adult, at which point you were get a job, hippie. You had to work and you were you were, had a family, yeah. And after the war, we had we had this wealth, we had this concept of childhood as a time, an idyllic time. And That's then, the
2: Victorian's fault, I think,
1: yeah, right. I guess, well, for, for the for rich, yeah, exactly, kids. yeah, exactly. But but uh, but after the war, there was this it spreads to the middle class, middle class, yeah. and then the teenager invented itself. Uh, or w- was invented, and so you had this period between childhood and adulthood where you could, you could be sexual or sexuality was entering into it, but you still had childlike features and you had childlike innocence. Hopefully, yeah. if you were gidget, so all of this is happening in the fifties and early sixties, and then by the by the mid sixties, we start to see it accumulate into a a universe, right, where you where you have the, and 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 the internationality of it you have japanese and french influence and there are um different styles of of animation right there's a, a french look that's different from a from a japanese look and, and yeah
2: but that disney stuff is so foundational like all those all those euro and um japanese comics guys you know like disney's just the god to them like if the Proto animation style. The 20s and 30s have been slightly different. Maybe furry conventions today would just look like what? You yeah, know, like tattoo parlor art, or <laughs> you know, punk art, or street art, or it could be anything. Future
1: Italian futurism. Well, and Robin Hood, you're not wrong. I mean, um, for a generation, is that their touchstone? In, in Watership Down came out in 72, and that was a world in which rabbits had. Not only, they weren't just rabbits living in holes that could talk. They had like a mythos, They have right? a society, uh, they have their own gods. Yeah, they yeah. have a they have a culture. Yeah. And Robin Hood was this evolution where over time animals stopped being animals in a human world and started just being animals in an animal And they're not just world. rabbits. Look how fun it is if there's a bunch of different kinds. Right. You know, no less a person than R. Crumb started in the mid-60s, even I think, I think early 60s but it became part of the underground comics community in the mid 60s that he was drawing Fritz the Cat, mm-hmm. who was, who also lived in a similar world where there were a lot of different kinds of animals that were in this Fritz the Cat anthropomorphic society where they had cars, they lived in cities. It was a kind of a futuristic, but weird, modern, uh, dystopic community of, of people. And R. Crumb famously expressed his, his Very complicated inner life, including his intersexual life, (laughs) complicated and problematic inner life. (laughs) uh, He found that he could, through animals, express things more in in a a way that he described more more truthfully. He could he could put them into situations where he could explore human dynamics. But if it was if if it was a cat talking to a bird or or whatever, it was easier for him to do. So, yes. Robin Hood is foundational, but also Fritz the Cat, and so that and Fritz the Cat had adult situations, right? And and, and
2: yeah, I've never I've read a lot of Crumb, but I don't I know that the Bakshi movie movies X rated. I mean, I assume Fritz and his fellow cats are there's there's sexuality in their world. There's right?
1: their sexuality, and Fritz is you know is a is a a guy who is trying to make it in the dating world, and I mean Fritz is kind of a, a pretty cynical character. Crucially within Fritz the cat, you can have cross species sexual relationships. What are the, do, do they explore what the kids look like? That's what these places always avoid. Uh, no they never they, <laughs> there's not, there's not a hybrid cat bird child <laughs> right because that would that would be a bummer.
2: <laughs> It'll probably be the cartoon convention where all the all the kids of the same gender as the father are the animal of the father, all the kids of the same gender as the mother are the, uh, are the animal of the mother.
1: Yeah maybe okay, that's right that, that you do see that sometimes. But then the mid-70s was uh, was an era where, where cons started to happen. Science fiction had also matured and become a thing that wasn't just, you didn't have to hide your science fiction book under the bed. It was a thing you could participate in a community of people that like sci-fi. And so cons started to happen. And I think within the furry community, there's a ur-comic or the ur- uh, document her text Er uh, text thank you is a is a was a book called albedo anthropomorphics which was an adult situation comic that and by adult i don't mean uh, nsfa or nsfw mm. it wasn't a sex comic it was just anthropomorphic animals in adult situations in human situations it was a kind of uh, science fiction comic Manga, I guess.
2: I had to check this. One of my favorite comics came out of this uh, albedo anthropomorphics or whatever it is, uh, Usagi Yojimbo, a, a Japanese rabbit samurai, uh-huh. which is this delightful <laughs> kind of 30-year saga that's been going since the mid-'80s. And I guess it makes me a furry if I like, like half-human, half-rabbits uh, in feudal Japan.
1: Yeah, well, that, uh, there, a man by the name of Steve Galachi like, wrote this, this seminal first albedo text that, um, that I guess coalesced, um, people to, uh, to see themselves as, as members of a, of a community of enthusiasts. It's not just an aesthetic. Now it's a, now it's a subculture. You could have loved Fritz the cat and been like, I don't know why, but I really, you know, I really, <laughs> I lo- relate to this. I, you know, I love the, uh, I love the, the crazy cat. And I mean, as a kid I did, I was exposed to Fritz the cat probably a long time before I should have been, but I was reading our crumb comics, uh, that were, belonged to my older brother. And I think the adults around me, this probably had happened no a lot. They were like, oh, he's reading comic That's, books. It's Archie. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of adult situations in, in, in those. Uh, and there were others, like there was a comic book called Omaha, the cat dancer, which was, right. Uh, these were originally... Strips, comic strips that appeared in alternative, like weeklies and weeklies and stuff. Zines. But in 1968, like Omaha was, uh, these were kind of soap operas. But there were very much like adult sex scenes within Omaha. I want to make a clear distinction because furries are often accused of being like, uh, like a sex. Yeah, it's, re- it's reduced to a kink.
2: Like, these are people who get off by dressing as prairie dogs.
1: And really, I think that, that Fritz the Cat and Omaha, although they had sex in it as a component, it was the, that sex was used to to communicate that these were adults who were in adult situations. And not that... And not, lo-
2: lovingly drawn human genitals on cats is a huge part of that to me. It, well,
1: <laughs> but, but it was... But really, there there were complicated storylines. Yeah, it was about relationships. It was about relationships, right? So it wasn't you didn't just flip through ten pages of story to see some cat boobs. (laughs) Um, It was you know the sex was meant as a component, and this was during a time in the '70s when people were making feature films that had explicit sex in them because this period of sexual liberation. There were attempts to integrate it into media. How far does this go? You know, where it's like, this is an hour and a half long movie and it has three actual like explicit sex encounters in it, but there's also a plot and acting. Now that didn't turn out to be how we watch movies today. It
2: seems like it's kind of a, it may be kind of a facade, like, <laughs> like there's really a, two different parts of your brain are appreciating the two right. different things of that movie, it right? It turns out
1: it's not what you want. Artistically, right? does that even work? The way it turned out we wanted to watch sex was in five minute long clips. <laughs> uh, but this nascent furry community started to really, there, there, was, a, there was a con, the original fur con uh, was called conference, oh. and you're gonna love this because furries love to make puns. So I am a furry, and you're, it's something likes you're puns, gonna. Like puns, like Disney
2: Robin Hood. If
1: you can take a word that has the fur sound in it and really boldface the fur, so conference. <laughs> there was a gathering in Costa Mesa, and Costa Mesa, California, is it just feels like the town where the first furry. Conference should have been right. It's not a thing that you would expect to see in Iowa City, Iowa. It's Costa Rica. What if what if it had been Lubbock or yeah. something? And then just doesn't doesn't you know. scan. But the uh, the arrival of the internet was maybe the more defining moment for furry subculture because if you were out in the out in the world and sort of felt like really what I want to be is an anthropomorphic fox, there was nothing better than the internet to to start to make connections to other people. There's not
2: going to be a tipping point for that
1: in your suburb or people who work at your Stuckies or whatever. And you remember going to the first quiz bowl con that you went to and realizing, look, it's a bunch of other people a- everybody's that Everybody's into this. Everybody has a book where they wrote down all the <laughs> questions in like. Uh, qu- like uh, Family you. Uh, yeah, $100,000 pyramid. Uh, actually, that may have just been me, it turns out. You never know. I mean, you didn't get into everybody's bag.
2: I need to find a much smaller con, feud con. But one of the first,
1: you know, fan communities on the internet was alt.fan.furry that started in 1990. And the advent of role-playing games um, on the internet, text-based role-playing games, Furry people with furry proclivities started to find each other and started to reinforce one another's uh, sense that there was... An identity here, uh, that it wasn't just a, a kind of, um, adult dress up, but that you, that the desire to be a furry was a, was in a way an, a desire to inhabit another persona. It says
2: something about you, especially the animal. I guess there's cultural precedent for this, right? Like uh, cultures that where people would choose a spirit animal, yeah. and they'd have certain, you know, they'd have certain traits of the animal, and they wouldn't dress up as a big plush caribou, but
1: but you see it all the time, yeah. It, uh, certainly, uh, there's a spiritual connection. You, you to put on a mask of an animal, and you and you you go into a state. You go you do a dance in a ceremony.
2: It could be a sweat lodge or it can be a weird rave-like thing at a convention in the Midwest. Right. But either way, it's a spiritual connection to the animal.
1: So this sense of inhabiting the animal in a way beyond just uh like play took on the name fursona. And this is another example of a Ken Jennings style maybe reach. I don't think I don't think it's Ken Jennings style. Fursona. <laughs> Uh, where furries started to say, like, "Hey, this is actually a this is a form of identity. I see myself as a furry in a in a different in a different light. Right? It's not. I'm not. I wouldn't just put on any old fur costume lying around. Like, I this is me. This fox
2: and making it an identity. Really, uh, it's trouble for uh, for those who don't like it to be reduced to a uh, you know, a kink or a sexual thing, Yeah, because, you know, making it part of your identity makes it feel analogous to saying, you know, I'm ready to come out to you. Uh I am uh, a stoat.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to slash start. That's Y O U S I C I A N dot slash start.
1: Well, when you do surveys of the furry community, it, it, some interesting stuff kind of comes out. Ooh. Ooh, I don't want to see interesting stuff come out. One of the. Oh, oh God. Should I actually should have a bell for that? Um, makeshift bell. One one thing uh, that becomes apparent is that the vast majority of furries, uh, role play carnivores. Hmm. So you don't. So you keep throwing out these like furry moose and stoats and I mean a stoat I guess is a carnivore, but is uh, it? Yeah, I guess. But not. like there are very few turtles, <laughs> or um, you know, and a, an awful lot of foxes. Wolves, cats, dragons—sometimes. So, sometimes. so it, it, does it read as more assertive to them? Well, it's it's unclear, but uh, but you know, su- surprisingly few like
2: gerbils and. Well, a lot of the cutest animals in nature are not carnivores. You know, bunnies or uh, what else? Wow.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, birds. birds.
2: Sure, uh, like a lot. A lot of your cute Disney animals are not eating each other. On break. I mean, so that's why I'm a. But I that's why my my fursona is one of those uh lantern fish. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have an adorable plus lantern fish costume that I used to lure in unsuspecting furries.
1: It's a little bit of a suggestion that inhabiting a persona is there is something about it where you you convey a certain humanness in the fact that you are you do identify Primarily as a predator rather than as prey. Oh, I see. That's true. Um, you, you're not. Uh, what if you're a vegetarian? You're not imagining. Your, well, <laughs> even so, I mean, you're not imagining yourself as a, um, right, as, as just somebody else's food. Yeah. Curiously, and, I, and this probably isn't much of a surprise, but, but uh, the vast majority of, of people who are active in the furry community are under the age of 30. And it's largely male. Uh, probably 75%. Oh, that's interesting. Men. Cuz you'd think the cute aesthetic
2: stereotypically in our culture would not be associated with guys.
1: But it's uh, but within the furry community there's a much there's like a uh, a much higher rate of uh, homosexuality, bisexuality, yeah, gender uh, fluidity um as men as much as 50% of the people are. Um
2: so you're you're warning people it's not a, it's not a gold mine to meet guys necessarily ladies.
1: No, but it may be a goldmine to meet guys if you are a guy. If, yeah, exactly. Uh, about half of the furries identify as atheist. So it's a it tends to be a progressive community, although there are some alt-right That's because furries. they know they're
2: abominations before God
1: in, the, <laughs> in, in their weird half-human,
2: half-animal <laughs> nature. I'm sure this is against something in Leviticus.
1: And, and there may be some bias here, because it's very hard to get, you know, it's, how, how do you do a survey of... Yeah, they'd have to take off their heads. Furries, I mean, it, it's it's tough to get an actual read, but there's a feeling that 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 they are that they're routinely slandered as being perverts. In researching it, I'm not a hundred percent sure why the rest of us non-furries jump to the conclusion yeah. that this is just a sex game so fervert is the one pun they will not oh, make oh fervert thank it, you it makes
2: us the weirdos if we're just if we see two people in suits and we're like hey how do you how do you guys yeah, like, what's do it up, like,
1: <laughs> I mean if you can imagine how difficult it actually would be to have sex with someone in a fur suit not to say that I have imagined it
2: not to if, mention unsanitary if
1: you just think about like there's an off there are a lot of layers to uh, that you would need to, I mean, it's already hard to have sex with somebody, even if you're both naked. No kidding. Like, you don't, we don't need to add a giant uh, gerbil head to the equation. But uh, but within furries, there are a lot of permutations of how much you identify with your fursona. And I think, a, I think probably at least half of the furries are just doing it as a kind of, it's as much a fun diversion as certainly as dressing up as anything else, right? As any other kind of cosplay.
2: Is there background? Is there like a backstory? Like, would my persona be like, am I a capybara named Ken Jennings or am I a capybara named Mr. Snuffles?
1: I think I think it's Mr. Snuffles. I mean, I think you do invent a separate self. And some furries talk and some don't.
2: Like, does he have a job? Is he a cobbler? Who?
1: uh... I mean, I'm starting to feel like the like drives a a old timey bicycle. What was his name? Mister Snuffles. Mister Snuffles drives an old timey bicycle. Is a cobbler. Uh, likes he's a snoot. Is that right? No, he's what did I say? Capybara. I think capybara. capybara. I think I think we should take this to a con. (laughs) For
2: some reason, (laughs) I have this all sketched out in my head. It's very very weirdly coming to me very weirdly fluidly.
1: But you know, the people that want to dress up like Chewbacca. At, a, uh, at an event. No one really uh, thinks of that as a sexual Right, thing. I, don't see that. I don't see Chewbacca, and I'm like, hey, is there a Mrs. Chewbacca? But there, But if you, showed, if you show up dressed like a fox with a bandolier. I think it's, I think it's something about the cute the aesthetic, cuteness, right. yeah. Like it, it
2: invites us to sexualize it in a creepy way, which we should not do.
1: But there is a subset of furries that actually feels like the furry identity is closer to their own identity. There's a phenomenon called other kin, mm, right. which are people who feel like they are something other than human. That is coming out. Like
2: that's, uh, I look human, but I got to tell you the truth about me. I'm actually a capybara named Mr. Snuffles.
1: Yeah. Well, or that there is, I mean, and, and there's a lot of debate, I think, even within the other kin community, whether or not some of some people feel like they were born knowing that they were other than human. And others feel like it's, you know, it's acculturated or whatever. The
2: analogy to being trans is very tempting, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to reveal who I actually am. And that being a furry then is, a, is an opportunity. I mean, that, that their true selves are, uh, that they're closer to their true selves within their fur-sona than they are as, you know, a human walking around. Hmm. And because more and more of our lives are being conducted online, uh, you can... Have a, a fursona persona avatar that you inhabit for much of your day. If you're if you're living a lot of your social life online, it, the surveys of, of furry people find that they do not very often switch between characters, costumes, and avatars. But they, you know, they inhabit an identity. They made for life, and that's right. And your your capybara is who you are.
2: I guess not that it matters, but it seems a bit arbitrary. I mean, you can see why there's a genetic, there might be a genetic basis for somebody to say, I feel more like a woman than a man. Yeah. You need to start calling me Rita. Whereas I, st- you know, what are the odds that like something in my genetics actually makes me feel
1: quite a bit like a flamingo? Well, and it may be that, uh, that- And, and they don't care
2: Probably They're like, yeah, I know this is created, but-
1: But it cares? may, it may be that they, that for mu- much of their life, they have absolutely felt other- And didn't have a name for it until, because there are a lot of people that Mm. feel within the trans community that don't say, I always knew I was a woman. You know, there is, there is a fluidity within gender identity that that can encompass a feeling of not being identified in the binary sense but in a But again a fluidity broad sense. based on species and especially related to how we perceive them in popular culture and geek culture but even even the idea of species i mean if you are an otherkin and feel uh, that you are not human it doesn't necessarily mean that you feel like you are fox mm-hmm. uh, but maybe fox is a closer approximation or part fox Sometimes, or, sometimes
2: they choose a, a thing that doesn't exist, right? Right. Like I've decided I'm actually this thing I invented. I'm a, I'm a unicorn, but with bat wings. Right.
1: There was a 2012 article in Wired about a man named Lee Bowers, who was a guy, he was a cattle rancher that, um, that at a certain point in his life got into the business of vinyl advertising uh, like the, you know, those inflatable banners? Uh, no, yeah, first banners. And then those guys that you see on the hide, the side of the road with the, like, uh, where there's an air pump inside and mm-hmm. they have their, I don't know. There's a is name there for, a name for these. Yeah. I don't know what they are either. Uh, I don't know. W- v- wavy vinyl guy. Waver, wa- wavy vinyl guy. And he was the guy that continued to kind of develop that technology until he invented the sports mascot. That is the inflated plastic. Sports mascot where there's a, a human mm. inside it, and there's a little fan that keeps the keeps the dinosaur pumped up.
2: Remember the first time I saw one of those? I was like, internet
1: video. What yeah. is was it the one of the of the the dinosaur that comes running out on the <laughs> yes, basketball <that>. court? <laughs> I falls in Let's space? just watch
2: that thirty times instead of doing the rest so of the show. Great, Tube Man. By the way, is what these things are usually Tube called. Man. Tube Man.
1: Anyway, that uh, that dinosaurs or inflatable sports character. Um, what what was interesting about them was. The operator within the character could move around inside the balloon. And so somebody that could really move around, you know, that learned the techniques, could make these mascots do incredible tricks because you're inside of it. And if you flip the costume around so that your feet are in the head and your head are in the head is oh, in the right. feet, it looks like the animal's standing on its head. And you're just in there kind of twist you're you're doing acrobatics, but you're twisting the costume too. And at one point, uh, he was looking for someone to do a demonstration, you know, a, a, a teenager to volunteer to get inside to do a demonstration of this costume for some buyer. And, uh, he contacted a woman who was going to bring her son. And at the last minute, her son backed out, but she brought her other son who, uh, was described as socially maladroit, you know, a, a a teenage boy that just looked at the ground and didn't talk to to grownups and was socially, um. not fluent. Mm-hmm. And this was before it was, it was more common to identify people on a spectrum of, of uh, autism. So we are just, just think thinking of him as kind of an odd kid. He's an kid. Odd, odd kid. And she brought her other son, you know, instead of the one that was a gymnast or whatever. And they put the kid in the suit and all of a sudden he came alive he was not a and i and i don't mean to say came alive in the sense that he wasn't before but just that he was very social all of a sudden he was able to go out into a room full of people and do tricks and meet and greet people and hug kids and in general just Interact in a way that he he never was able before. The layer of protection gave him comfort that he didn't have in his own skin. And they said that there were a lot of factors, like the fan that inflates the suit creates a kind of white noise environment. Oh, interesting! And you're just in this bubble where you can see out, but people can't S- see sensory in.
2: Sensory deprivation,
1: but you can somehow relate to people. And he he, when they talked to him afterwards, he said, "You know, this was, um, I felt like I could finally be be me." I'm a balloon man. In this, they recognized that rather Lee Bowers started to explore the idea of, of this as a kind of therapy and they called in psychologists and it was sort of, exp- it, it was and is explored as a way of an opportunity for greater socialization among people, for people f- for whom social interaction is too difficult or is, is overwhelming. So it can be therapeutic now, it's a... Yeah. And so there's some, uh, there's some maybe sense of furry lifestyle, uh, fur style, I guess, where you have to take into account the fact that being inside of a fursuit is really liberating. It allows you to, in, to be maybe more, more social, more accessible, more extroverted. But at the cost of your comfort, it must be hot and sweaty. I think it is hot and sweaty. I think it's, um, but I think it's a, it's a small price to pay. There is a clear distinction within the community between people that this is their identity and this is just a thing a that hobby. they do. Yeah. Hobby, right. Um, but furry lifestylers, who are the people that like this is their identity, it's really, they do see it as a kind of like an identity, depending on who you're talking to, that's kind of at a primary level.
2: Have we failed them? Like, should we have reached out to them to make them comfortable in a world such that they don't need the hot, sweaty rabbit suit?
1: Well, it's hard. I, I
2: mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't want to deny them what makes them happy, but should we have given them other options if, all, if, if it's all just an out, an out, you know, a way to cope with their alienation?
1: I think this is ongoing, right? I mean, we see, this, we see some origin moments in what is actually the fairly recent past And as time goes on, if you think of Snapchat and Instagram filters, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are this. You put your face on the internet and it anthropomorphically changes you into a mouse or a rabbit. Typically, a prey animal uh, if you're talking about Snapchat filters.
2: I guess I I always thought that was like, I'm not comfortable with my looks in this picture, but everyone likes a kitten. So what if I was... Twenty percent more like a kitten. Well
1: and that is I think related to the impulse, right? If you're in a fursuit, you are generating I mean, your attractiveness is up to you in the construction of the suit and the way you inhabit it. So you can be you can be having a terrible outbreak of acne, but your your animal Mr. Mr. Snuffles has, you know, the best skin in the room. But as we increasingly transition to a world lived on in virtuality Mm Um, I think we'll find that the impulse to furry will require- Is, requi- is it a verb? A furb? To, to furb. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: but people, do they say to furry? You're ideal for this. Or is, really?
1: or, or is there- No, I think I just coined that. Oh, okay. But But the impulse to furry will be, um, you know, the barrier to entry will be a lot lower if all it takes is that you go on and set your filters so that you appear online as a wolf or a cat and you don't have to build a suit-
2: it's going to be self-perpetuating. <laughs> and that concludes Furries. Entry 508.gn2716, certificate number 26505, in the Omnibus. Uh, listeners, we are already in this world of virtuality, which is why when I look at John with my Google Glass on, he turns into a big walking, talking... What's your persona, John?
1: B- I can't believe you got out of this without having to say what your persona is. leopard bear. Is.
2: A big leopard bear. <laughs> a leopard berry. Bear-a. a le- Lepiberra. <laughs> oh, I see. It's a leopard and a capybara. Yeah. I'm a boys and bearer. It's oh, a boys and berry and a capybara. Oof. So, you, if you would like to reach out to us virtually in your own persona or a fake persona of your own creation, we will have no idea. You could do that on social media, uh, which sadly. Uh, still exists in our time. Uh, You can reach us at Omnibus Project on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so forth. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings. John is at Leopardberry. John is at uh, John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. I sure am. Uh, The Facebook futurelings at this point all appear to be human, but maybe at this point they uh, have been emboldened and we're finally going to see their true colors. I think for
1: sure they are not all human. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Even now they're not.
2: I wonder if our future listeners uh, cosplay as humans, the long dead, because people for for fursuit as dinosaurs, so why not the extinct human race?
1: Can you imagine the... uh, the future capybara, the giant capybara that's wearing a Ken Jennings suit. Yeah, is and, it a specific and, human? And walking along with a, with their book of, uh, <laughs> of family feud questions that everyone in the future knows is your signature... Beep, boop, beep, <laughs>
2: 100 people surveyed, top seven answers on the board. Uh, so those people are at Facebook as the futurelings. Uh, sorry, I said people. I don't want to no, judge. those beings. Those, spe- those species, uh, those entities. Uh, you could send us electronic mail, which had no picture at all, and we would just imagine you as, as leopard bears, uh, to the Project at gmail.com. Send us physical items, uh, hopefully not sweaty uh, fur suit relics, to Omnibus Project, PO Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155.
1: Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past when we still were. Largely forced to walk around in our skin suits. It was humiliating. Uh, only covered by a layer of thin layer of denim uh, and flannel. <laughs> <thin> layer of <laughs> denim and flannel, exactly. <laughs> instead of the m- much more comfortable uh, fur for suit, for fursona. It's fursona. really good if you pseudosona.
2: fall down a lot, like we were saying that you and I are starting to do in our middle age. You like can, if you're
1: a big cozy koala, sure, roll right down the stairs. Who cares? Well, and within a fursuit, you could wear our elbow pads and knee pads and you could be completely armored under there for for all anyone cares but not emotionally emotionally you're no, available that's right you do come you know there's a famous story of uh, a group of furries were having a convention in a hotel in Vancouver and that hotel also happened to be where a bunch of Syrian refugees were uh <laughs> is you know, this is their first housed. their first view of the west <laughs> and there were there was all this like fear and controversy and hullabaloo about the fact that these people were you know super traumatized by what had happened to them and what well, the last thing they needed was to be walking through a hotel lobby that's full of furries all you know getting down and what turned out was the furries were extremely kind to the children and the children were just fascinated and it was and the encounter between the refugees and the furries was an extremely positive event for both groups.
2: I bet it's a welcoming scene. Yeah. And a good place to buy Molly, I've heard. Oh hmm. The most this is very parenthetical, but the 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 most famous fur furvention? What conference? For, yeah, conference. The, forvention. The, the most famous uh Furry convention in America is the one Nero here because it's the one that had the chlorine gas attack oh. a few years ago, where some unknown person threw a mason jar of chlorine into the stairwell and caused a, you know, a public health outbreak and nobody knows if it's a disaffected furry right. or a furry foe or, you know, whatever it is. But that's the very same hotel where the biggest quiz bowl, high school quiz bowl tournament in America is held <laughs> every year. So maybe it, it at was- At the a, highest level, all
1: cons really are the same con. Maybe it was a, a disaffected quiz bowler who was like, get out of my hotel. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word or our final rar. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.